Well, uh, wow, it's loud. <laughs> Mic check, please. Uh, again, for those of you that don't know me, my name is uh, Gary Brawley, and I am the deacon of hospitality here at Cornerstone Church. And I've been asked to continue our study in, in Philippians this week, but I wanted to first say Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Um, what a great privilege it is to have our children call us dad. I'm honored, too, that um, my dad is here, too. He'll uh, not claim me to be his son if I owe you money, but Chad Ryan's not here, so I think I should be okay um, if you go talk to him. It's been one of his life stories. I don't know how much money he's gotten out of that, but he's used it quite a bit. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, or a connecting point, um, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will get that into your hand so that uh, you can follow along with our message this morning. Again, we will be in Philippians uh, chapter 3. Philippians is to the right of, of Corinthians. There's a couple of the big books of Corinthians, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, um, and we'll be in chapter 3. I thought it would be important for this message this morning to set the stage a little bit about this letter from the Apostle Paul to the people in Philippi. A couple of points. The town of Philippi was established originally by Thacian colonists. <clears throat> These were people that went to this region of the country of Macedonia because of the wealth and prosperity in the country. On the map there, you can see in the far right, Philippi was kind of on the major road, east-west road, um, through the country, as well as it was up just above the port city of Neapolis. So all the, the port, all the fishing, all that stuff that came out of the port would come up to this major thoroughfare across the country from Neapolis into Philippi. In addition... There was great wealth in Philippi because of the gold in the hills. So it led the people to prosper. The nice thing about this letter to the Philippians by Paul is that it was truly Paul's heart for these people. This was not a letter of admonishment. He truly encouraged the Philippians in their daily walk. So this letter to the Philippians was written about 10 years after Paul made his first visit to Philippi. He now, he did make a couple of other stops on his way, but we know from Acts that it was, it was his original visit about 10 years before he wrote this letter um, to them. So as we start this message today, we're going to be looking at a couple key points. The first point is it begins with me. The second, it will take a team. And the third is we have already won. All the passages and verses that I am referencing in today's message are on the bottom of that connecting points in the dig and deeper section. So you need not worry if I quickly go through those. You can go back and read those later. So let's, uh, let's begin with our words today, Philippians 3, 12 through 14. It says, not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect, 
but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. At this point, Paul is looking inward. Paul is reflecting on his life as a follower of Christ to the Philippians. In those first verses there, the thing that caught me was, Paul writes, not that I have already attained it. He mentions the word it a couple times. So I felt like it was important to understand what that it is. We need to look back to last week's message that, that Jeff brought to us to determine what that it is he is referring to. Philippians 3, 7 through 10 says, But ever were gains to me, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have all lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So think about the Philippians when they read this. They've gotten this letter from Paul as Paul was in prison, and they get this letter, and I can imagine the excitement that they, was on their face when they got this, and they're sitting there, and someone may have been reading this to them, and they read this passage that says, not that I've already, already obtained it or have already become perfect. You see, this is about 30 years into Paul's ministry. Paul was the man. Paul was very regarded for his theology. Most people knew Paul's story and his transformation on the road to Damascus. Yet these people hear the letter from Paul saying, I have not even obtained it. And I struggle and I challenge it. And that's Paul. What, that, what does that mean for us? The word become there in that first verse is the passive voice. It was written in, in meaning that it is not something that Paul is doing in his own life, but something that someone else, or in this case, God, is doing in his life. God is continuing to work through Paul. Romans 9, 20 through 21, Paul also wrote this. It says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You see, people, we are the clay. God is continually molding us. Hundreds of years even before Isaiah wrote, Yet you, Lord, are our Father, 
We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Paul understood that. Paul, Paul knew that his daily life was a challenge, but it was God continuing to mold him into the man that he wanted him to become. As we continue on in that passage, we contrast the passive word of become and we look at the word says, I press on. But Paul says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I laid hold of Christ. This is an active role. This is meaning it is something that Paul is having to do. This is Paul's time in prayer. This is his time in word. This is his time in meditation to hear the voice of Christ and the direction he has for his life. The one cool little part of that verse where it says that, that which also I was laid hold of by Christ. We go back to Paul's story in, in Acts 9 when he was blinded and he goes into Damascus and God sends Ananias to him. And what does Ananias do? Ananias was told to lay hands on Paul. And the scripture says that and immediately after Ananias laid hands on him, there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Paul felt the physical touch of, from Ananias as he was being transformed from a Christian killing man to being an apostle and a warrior for Christ. So he had a little bit to say in that point. We're looking at verse 13. It says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. This is Paul. He's not looking at his discontentment in his life. He's using that to spur on his pursuit of righteousness. When he's saying, when he's reflecting back on his life, he's not dwelling on that, and we hear that a little bit later. He is sitting there and using that to encourage him and strengthen him every day in his life. When he goes on, and that leads us to what I call our question of the day, or maybe our fill in the blank of the day, Paul says, but one thing I do. I want you to take a moment in light of what's coming up, in light of the answer that Paul is going to give us. What's that one thing you do? What's that one thing you do in regards to the it that Paul talked about? What is the one thing you do in regard to the it, which is, which is your pursuit of Christ's righteousness? Just think about that for a second in your own life. Is it you come to Christ only when it's convenient? Or how about we come to Christ only when we're in need? For some of us, the one thing we do is maybe it's pray continually. Maybe it's studying the word in our pursuit of righteousness. Let's just pray for a second for God to reveal this. So Lord God, I, I just was humbled by these words during my time of study and, and reflection of my own life when I asked myself, how do I even answer that question? 
or how do I fill in that blank of but one thing I do? So Lord, I just pray right now for everybody in this room, Lord, that you may reveal it to their heart. May we pray the boldness of David when he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, may that be our prayer right now as we search for that. Lord, we search for what it is, and yet, Lord, we search for what it will become as we continue to study through this passage. And we thank you for that. Amen. So how does Paul answer that question? Forgetting, but one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward what lies behead, what lies ahead. See, we knew we know that Paul used his past as encouragement to his future, but we also see that he he doesn't want to dwell on that and make it become an obstacle or an idol of his past that takes him away from seeing what God has for him in the futures. Lamentations three twenty three twenty three says the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. First compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen. Matthew Chandler, in his book, To Live as Christ, To Die as Gain, writes, The victory of yesterday was given to you by the grace of yesterday. Today comes with grace of its own. His mercies are new every morning, like manna delivered to you just in time. Yesterday's grace is inadequate in the face of today's struggles. Paul, again, understood what it was meant to go after what's ahead of him and not for worrying about what was behind. The word there, reaching forward to what lies ahead, that word means straining, to, to strain for something. I get the image or the picture in my mind when I'm looking at that of, of Paul just reaching with his hands to his father, when he's straining, when he's reaching forward to what lies ahead, that he just can't quite get there. And we know in our own flesh, we can never get there. And God will come get us. But when Paul's saying that he is reaching forward, he is straining, it is causing him anguish, and it's causing him pain. And we know from Paul's letters of the pain that was afflicted on his body for Christ. And he still continues every day to strain for that. Paul continues on. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew there, that there is an end to this life. We all do too. That's an absolute. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. Now, there's more to that verse, but I'm going to come back to that later on in this message. Yet the prize, the prize that, that Paul is pursuing, that upward call of God in Christ Jesus is worth a daily pursuit. You take into looking at it as, as what, I want to just kind of deter a little bit from this message and think about the elite athlete in their pursuit of Olympic gold. I'm going to use Michael Phelps 
as an example, I don't know Michael Phelps. I don't know his faith. I don't know where he stands in relationship to Christ. But I do know he is arguably one of the greatest Olympians of our time. Uh, Michael Phelps, five-time Olympian, you know, competed in his first Olympics at age 15, uh, and he has 28 medals. That's a devoted pursuit of a prize, of a medal. There's, so in just looking up and reading some stuff about Michael Phelps, there's five things that he does in that pursuit. The first is he embraces drills and practice. There's a man that swims nearly 80,000 meters a week in practice, yet his longest race that he swings is 200 meters. That's why I'm not an Olympic swimmer. He practices five to six hours a day, six days a week for the, that pursuit of the prize. Yet you ask, well, what about us? Well, Let's see what Scripture says about embracing drills and practice. Philippians 4.9. Sorry, Jeff, I'm going to steal your thunder for next week. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There's Scripture for the same thing that Phelps does. Number two, Michael Phelps talks about getting the gear, using the tools that he has available, all the tools he has available to him to train. In his pursuit of the prize, and to be the ultimate athlete, to get in the gear, train with the tools. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us, in our pursuit of the prize, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The next one, Michael Phelps talks about, is weights and strength and endurance. The importance of that. Do not, and in Isaiah 41.10, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous hands. Michael Phelps' pursuit, our pursuit of the prize. The fourth point was rest and recover. Matthew 11.28, we all know that verse. Come to me, all who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. So we find our pursuit of the prize in Christ and the rest from that. The final point that, that Michael Phelps mentions is to train your brain. Interesting story with this point. In the Beijing Olympics, his goggles filled with water and he no longer could see the lane lines or know where his turns was. And he said that he went back and, and to just started counting his strokes because he knew how many strokes it took him to get down the pool before he had to make his turn. But that was through his training that he was able to, to change his mind and not worry about his goggles being filled with water, that he just diverted his mind and his, his focus on his strokes, and he won that event. Romans 12.2 tells us, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, so that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Michael Phelps pursued the prize of an Olympic gold medal, but that's not going to get him into heaven. 
We have those same things. Paul had those same things right here. All that we need for our pursuit of the prize has been given to us right here in the Word. And that's where we need to be. And that needs to be our training tools. That needs to be a constant in our pursuit of the prize. As we continue on in this message, you know, the key to pressing on begins in me, but does not intend it. But God does not intend me to do this alone. The next passage in verse 15 says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will, will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the patterns you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. Paul changes his writing at this point in this passage from talking about himself and the one thing that he does and his constant pursuit to the us. So he's putting himself on equal terms with the Philippians and I believe that was on purpose. As Paul was a very humble man and wanted to make sure that the Philippians saw that in him as well. When Paul talks about being perfect, he's not talking about being perfect like Christ was perfect. He's talking about being mature. And the maturity of a believer, maturity of a follower of Jesus Christ is one that would have a constant pursuit of righteousness. And that is what he is challenging the Philippians to. Paul gives some encouragement when he says, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have, uh, we have attained. Paul believed that we needed to keep having words given to us by others, by Christ in our pursuit, in our daily lives. And in verse 3, verse 1, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse, uh, Paul continues on when he says, join in following my example. That's a pretty bold statement for a humble man to make. Yet Paul makes this same statement to four other people or groups. He makes it to the church in Corinth. He makes it to the church in Thessalonica. He makes it to Timothy and he makes it to the church in Ephesus. If Paul's going to make that type of statement, he knows he's going to have to live that life. He's going to have to walk the walk if he's talking the talk. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 through 11, 1 says, Even as I try to please everyone in every way, and this is Paul talking, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. For follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
See, when Paul makes his statement, says, brethren, follow me, he knew that his life was in that constant pursuit of righteousness, that constant pursuit of the prize and following that example. There's two words that are used in the Greek at this point for the word example. They are tupas and hypodikume. They're used interchangeably throughout Scripture to mean the same type of word and using that example. The first is the tupas. And it, we are now, we go to a verse in Scripture where Thomas is in the room and Jesus has just come into the room after being raised from the dead. In John 20, 25, it says, So the other disciples were with him, saying, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the tupas, the examples of the nails, and put my finger into the tupas, the example of where the nails were, I will not believe. But we know what happens. We know that Thomas sticks his fingers into the hands of Christ and believes. In John 13, 15, this is when Jesus is in the upper room on the night before he's betrayed and he's washing the feet of the disciples and he says, for I give you a hupodikunume, an example that you also should do as I did to you. See, Christ modeled this example for us. Christ should be our model of our constant pursuit of righteousness. As he walked, so shall we. On your connecting points, we have the engaging in the call. It says, are you living a spirit-filled life that you can share Paul's words when he says, join and follow my example? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 to 18, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and get, gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In our house, in the Brawley house, we call that living differently, living distinctively different. It's a constant conversation I have with my oldest son, Joshua, right now as he's going to be starting his freshman year at Liberty and he's on the baseball team right now, and he's spending a lot of time with those guys, and I continue to challenge him to how is he living differently on that team. You see, we want to strive to be the example of Jesus Christ in our world of influence, and not just ours. When we look at those next two verses in the passage, this is the only point in this passage where Paul is actually going against what's going on in the town of Philippi. For he writes, for many walk, I'm in verse 18, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. Remember I talked about before the town of Philippi was a prosperous town with the gold and the trade and everything going on. So there was a lot of gluttony and a lot of this stuff going on around them. And I think Paul puts us in there, puts us in there to challenge us to live in community, 
to protect ourselves from those types of things. And Paul uses that word weeping. As I was studying for this message and I word just kind of jumped off the pages to me that I could see Paul writing this in his prison cell and just pausing at that point and weeping for those who are lost because Paul knows what that end destruction is. As he says there, whose end is destruction, that word destruction is not the annihilation, but rather ruin by separation from the presence of God in eternal judgment. Paul still had a heart for the lost. Paul had a heart for those people that didn't know God and who called their own world, those things around them, was satisfying enough for them. Yet, Paul knows and tells us that that end of life is not going to be one of good. And I think that's where we need to be too. In Paul David Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, it says our goal is to help one another live with a God story mentality. Our mission is to teach, admonish, and encourage one another to rest in his sovereignty rather than establishing our own, to rely on his grace rather than performing on our own, and to, to submit to his glory rather than seeking our own. This is the work of the kingdom of God, people in the hands of the Redeemer, daily functioning as his tools of lasting change. Just go back to our example of, of Michael Phelps. He doesn't become the Olympic medalist that he is on his own. He has agents. He has a manager. He has a swim coach and probably a swim coach for every stroke that he competes in. He has a personal trainer. He has a dietitian. He has a psychologist, sports psychologist. He's got personal advisors that take care of his business affairs, his, his daily affairs, um, his, his PR stuff. All these people are around this one individual in their pursuit of the prize. And that is where God calls each one of us to walk this life. Not as individuals, but as a, as a team in that pursuit of the prize. In, in the being in community section on your bulletin, it says, as an elite athlete trains, they are surrounded by people that support them, each with their own specialty. The Apostle Paul had men like Silas, Timothy, and others noted as companions whom he traveled with. As, be as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to do the same type of fellowship. This is what Dan talked about in the very first week in our study of, pass of the passage of Philippians, the Koinonia fellowship that we are called to be. So this is in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts from one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but many. Find a brother or sister and come alongside of them. Do life with them. I've been meeting with a group of guys for about a year and a half now, and it's just a sweet time of fellowship. We just get to share life. Sometimes it's not about a Bible study. Sometimes it's just being there 
for encouragement, and, and we've gone through a lot of things in the last year and a half, the three of us, and we can see God moving in that, and the relationship that I have with these two other men is really special. So you, you get into those types of relationships, you will, you will be amazed at not just what you will be able to contribute, but also how God will use it to conform you. So our pursuit of the prize is both individual and as a team, but pressing on requires knowing that we've already won. In the last, this passage, starting in verse 20 through 401, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to the subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul continues on as he's writing with his inclusiveness with the Philippians. When he talks about our citizenship is in heaven, this would have meant something to the Philippians. Remember I said at the beginning, they were colonists that had come and settled into this area because of the gold and the trade that was going on. So it was, they understood that as they were Greek and they would not have been from this part of the country. So they understood what citizenship meant. Well, our citizenship as followers of Jesus Christ is in heaven. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Whenever we talk about life and citizenship in heaven, we can't help but go back to Revelation 21, where John gets a glimpse of what it's going to be like in heaven. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the Holy Spirit, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this, this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's just a great picture of what we have in store for us. We look in there in that passage and it says that we are eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, con contrast those people that Paul referred to back in the earlier passage when he says that they were content 
with their own lives. When Paul talked about those people in Philippi, that their God was their appetite, they were content. They weren't waiting for anything else. They weren't eagerly waiting for that, yet the Philippians who were reading this letter and Paul and those of us today eagerly wait the return of our Savior Jesus Christ or till when we are called to heaven. In verse 4, 1, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In, his, in the original passage, therefore, my beloved, was a term of an endearment. He's getting close to finishing up this letter to the Philippians, and he changes from just calling them brethren to my brethren as a term of an endearment to their lives. When he says, I long to see my joy and my crown, this word crown is not the crown of royalty. This crown refers to the crown of the victor, the crown that would have been given as a prize in the games. It's not the diadema, which is the ornate crown given to the king. This would have just been the prize that would have been given to someone at that time as we go. I would like to now invite Hannah up and uh, those serving communion as I work to wrap this passage up. You see, when I was studying this and we've been, I was given this passage a couple months ago to teach on and I've torn it apart and dug deep into it and, and just prayed for God to give me the words that he wanted me to relay to you. I didn't title this section purposely, We Will Win, because we already won. That verse that I referred to earlier when I said 1 Corinthians 15 22, for as in Adam all die. You know what the rest of that verse says? So also in Christ, all will be made alive. See, see the prize that we're after it was already won when Jesus went to the cross. Yet, we're still called to pursue that prize. God knew that while yet we were still sinners, he needed to do something because we were never going to get there on our own. So he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. So the prize that we are after would be won. It's there waiting for us. We get it. We get the gold medal. There's no silver medal in heaven. There's only one. And that prize is worth everything we've got. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians from prison all the other letters that Paul wrote to encourage us every day to live a life worthy of God's calling because the prize has already been won. So let's pray. Dear Father, we just cannot thank you enough 
for the words that you preserved for us today. Words that were written 2,000 years ago to a town in Asia by the Apostle Paul still reflect and are still important to those of us today in this small little cafeteria that we call a church. Lord, we just thank you too for the promise that you fulfilled when you sent your son to die on the cross. That is how much you loved us, that you sent your son to die for his body to be broken, for his blood to be shed, to win the prize so that we would get to participate in that and see you in all your glory. So Lord, as, as we come to your table right now and take these elements, the bread and the juice to represent your body and your blood, may we just remember that. And may we think back on what Paul asked us in the scripture when he says, but one thing I do. May we look at our lives today and see what that one thing is that we, we do. And maybe that needs to be changed because we get to see you and the prize has been won. Lord, I just thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.